are those nights when you can hear the sound of a dog barking? Is it a dog, or is that the howl of a werewolf? When you hear a clown laughing at you, or the roar of a 1950s engine coming at your full speed. Join us as we go into the Macroverse. Hello everyone, I'm Jacob. I'm Levi, and welcome to Into the Macroverse, the podcast where we take a deeper look into all uh, films Stephen King and try basically, to connect them together. Basically, the entirety of the cinematic universe of Stephen King is in our hands. We've taken a bit of a prolonged break, but we are back again, ready to get back on that upload schedule. Absolutely. And this week we're going to be looking at a newer, I'm sorry, it was a new remake they did recently, but we're going to look at the old version of The Stand, one of the most, um, how would you say, like influential pieces within the macroverse? I, I think it is like the quintessential macroverse film, simply because it so effortlessly kind of weaves the entirety of the macroverse into it, just in the background. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more because like a lot of everything that goes on within this uh, little mini-series affects everyone around or is connected to someone else in some way. So we've been looking forward to doing this episode for a while now. We have. I was actually a very big fan of these first two episodes of The Stand. And I was surprised, really, that they're not very, uh, not very talked about. Now, the series did have a very high budget approximately 28 million dollars which is a lot for a film that people don't really talk about and not to mention the all-star cast that was actually there on it we got rob lowe was it? ed harris was in this movie tom holland <laughs> not the tom holland you're thinking of the spider-man but some random actor by the name of tom holland who was supposedly born in 1943 well i wouldn't say it was just anyone random but he also did write um child's play Okay, you're right about that one. He wrote Child's Plays as well as a bunch of other uh, horror films. So he's got a lot under his belt, so be sure to check him out too. But let's going to start off this uh, Macroverse with you, Jacob. And how about you give, talk to us about what's going on within, the, within uh, this film? Yeah. In this film, it is bas- it's basically Stephen King's quarantine film, I guess you would say. There's this giant... Not even nationwide, but worldwide plague that breaks out hyper infectious and just insanely deadly. And basically, anyone that comes across anyone that has this disease dies very, very quickly. But there are a handful of people with that natural immunity that somehow just manage to avoid it time and time again. And there's a reason for it, which you start to realize as time goes on. Right. And I, I think you really summed it up pretty well. But it kind of hits a little close to hope with everything that's been going on recently, too. Exactly. And like, I, I think it's kind of funny how, as soon as COVID started, this, this uh, stand got remade. Yeah, it was 2020 that the remake, the 2020 remake came out, which was, you're right, perfect timing. Almost a little yeah, bit too perfect. <laughs> right? It seemed a little sketchy. I was like, so you're telling me a nationwide virus, worldwide virus, 
puts everybody into quarantine. All of us are in a panic. Start wearing these face masks and all this other sketchy stuff happening right as the real world did. I don't know. It just kind of seems a little strange to me. Maybe Stephen King had an involvement in this worldwide pandemic conveniently to to boost the sales of Amazon Prime streaming tickets to go see his new film. He's like, what if I put the world into the macroverse as a whole? Then they would really get it and understand. <laughs> so how about, so let's start off like we always do, Jacob. How about you give us a, uh, you know, rundown of the entire first episode? What goes on? So it starts off with one of the main characters whose name is Stu. And there are a lot of characters in this specific Stephen King adaptation. Let's be real here. Pretty Absolutely. stacked cast. It was a stacked cast. I like how there's so many different characters that you can latch onto and connect with. And the first one that really got me was the initial start of this episode was just insane. Because how better could you start it off with just panic out of nowhere? Exactly, yes. And it op- had a very nice sweeping opening montage scored by none other than Blue Oyster Cult. With their hit single, Don't Fear the Reaper. Which is perfectly named for this specific film, because as we know, Randall Flagg is deeply involved in this specific Stephen King adaptation. And he is... Yes, we will. But he is essentially the Reaper, in my eyes. Oh yeah, definitely. So I would say the film starts out with this character named Camion, who I always thought they said Champion at first, but it says Campion. Campion? Campion. I don't even want to pronounce it. And we see that this facility is breached and something gets out and he immediately takes his family and starts driving. And we see what this breach does and this entire facility, everybody's dead. Yeah, we see people who are just like standing still die instantly almost. Like they had died in their seat, basically. Yeah, it wasn't even like they had gotten like stabbed. It was more just like one moment they were typing on the keyboard. Next moment, they just... Everyone died at the same time. Horrifying, because then we see that it took a minute because of how scientists were begging to get out, begging to scream, and I was like, wow, so like, did it work faster on some? Did it work faster on others? But anyway, Campion drives his car out to Arnett, Texas, a small town, which, you know, as we know in the macroverse, is kind of signature. some small town. Yes. And crashes into a gas station where we meet our, one of our first main characters, Redman. Stu Redman. And we see Campion dies in his arms and all these people gather around and essentially are infected at that point. Yeah, it only takes about like half a second of exposure for you to get this. And if you get it, you either die or you just never get it. Which is horrifying to think about. And then we get an immediate cut and we start talking about Larry Underwood. Larry Underwood, yes. Larry Underwood, who is a prominent new up on the rise singer for his song um was it was it like love your man something like that but he was in he lived in california right but the rest of his life took place in was it new york yes he went to new york because uh he went to la for his uh, record deal, sang his song, which was on the rising. Apparently, he was number one on VH1 in his uh, in this uh, show. Yeah. So and, in this universe, he yeah. is famous. Yeah, in this universe, this this, this is a prominent man, very, very well celebrity status. And that's rare for the Stephen King universe because it is usually nobodies that are focused on. And he went to New York to visit his mom because he'd gotten a little bit of money trouble. Just a little bit. 
$40,000 worth. Yeah, and at that time, that might as well be a death sentence. 1994 to now, yeah, that is a lot of money. Even by today's standards, that's a lot of money. Yeah, but yeah, I'm saying that's probably what, like, good 80 grand today, something like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the inflation rates, don't get me started. <laughs> so from there, we also are introduced to General Starkey, who, with the rest of the United States government, are trying to keep this under wraps. Not wanting to have this mass spread panic, but rumors are still flying about. Yes, the religious crowd take to it very quickly, you know, pushing their whole apocalypse punishment for their sin type ordeal. But everyone right. is worried at this point. Rightfully so. And we see that, you know, we kind of stray away from Larry's situ- uh, scene. All that really happens is that he just talks to his mom a little bit and then he's done. Yes, that was the end and of that. And then we're introduced. We're introduced to Harold and Francie. Franny. Harold is... How, how would you describe Harold? Harold comes in with a uh, new poem book. One that he's published in, mind you. Prestigious magazine, as he said. And Harold is the nerd, you would yeah, say. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, he's a little bit... I guess the word people would say now is kind of simpy. Social outcast, had a crush on somebody since nine, and just can't let no go. Can't let it go, no. And he's, he's a bit of a creep. But also ever so slightly kind of endearing. But his character is, during the situation, he's pretty wary. Pretty uh, non-trusting of new people. Absolutely. I would say he's more of a social outcast, socially awkward, never really been around things. And is kind of, you know, a loner. Absolutely. And And he is in love with Franny. And Franny... Wants nothing to do with him. She comes off as the popular girl, has it all going on, just broke up with her man. Yes. And of course, he sees the opportunity to jump in, but Franny wants no part of that. I don't blame I mean, her. I mean, he, he was kind of a creep. You know, he yeah, even definitely. A little bit. But you know what? What I think is kind of interesting is that he still tried, even though that he knew it, you know? Yeah, you know, at least he tried, but... Sometimes you just gotta accept that there are a lot more fish in the sea. Gotta take the L sometimes. Yes, exactly. Another interesting little thing I'm looking at through the cast list here is Kathy Bates is pretty um, prominent throughout this series, and you might know her as the Lady in Misery. Yes, Kathy Bates. And I think it's kind of cool that she is kind of like a returning face in a lot of different Stephen King movies. I I think she fits the profile very well. And then next we're introduced to... Nick Andros, played by the ever-famous Rob Lowe. And did you know he had a show um, and his, on his theme show, uh, his theme song for his show, his intro, was also Blue Oyster Cults, Don't Fear the Reaper. I did not know that, but I wonder if that's why he took the role. Yeah, I, I, what was it called? It was like the Rob Lowe show or something like that with his son. It was the Lowe Files. I'm sorry, the Lowe Files. And it was a paranormal show that they talk about, you know, different theories and went on to go out and look for Bigfoot sometimes, and uh, his intro was um, Don't Fear the Reaper. Probably got it from this show, too. Oh, yeah. Inspired him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a little tidbit of information here, but we're introduced to Roblo, who plays a deaf character who gets beat up by this guy named Ray. Deaf and mute. Let's, let's make that clear, too. Yeah, he's deaf, he's mute, but he can read lips and know sign language and can write. Yeah, he, he knows how to communicate with those that, that don't recognize that he's deaf, and yeah. It's in this introduction, which starts off out of nowhere, him walking down this road, only to be jumped by three men and get absolutely mollywopped. Oh, yeah, he, he is beat up pretty uh, pretty hard, and it was 
kind of surprising. I was like, why? It's sad to see. I was like, what, what's this man's problem? Why are you going after a man who's deaf? But it's kind of important because here we're also introduced to Mother Abigail. And Mother Abigail is like the central unifying character of this film's universe. Because just about every character that we see throughout this series has very strong, potent visions of Mother Abigail. Mother Abigail is almost like a guiding light to these characters. But what I thought was really interesting, and those of you who have been listening to the Macros for a long time will remember this, is that Rob Lowe, or uh, I should say Nick Andros, woke up in a cornfield, walked over and found Mother Abigail, this guiding light, almost a century of good, and she said, a storm's coming. His storm. Pointed to the cornfield, and in there was our first glimpse at a character that we mentioned before, actually at the end of our season one of Into the Macroverse, Randall Flagg. Yes, and Randall Flagg is much like the central character that is Pennywise. It's basically these two alien-like creatures. What's the name of Pennywise? You want to throw that the out there? Grays. Mr. Gray. Robert, yeah, there's Robert, Robert Gray. Gray and Randall Flagg, and they are basically these two units of chaos. If you were paying attention before, uh, we did mention that we mentioned him before in a previous episode. So we'll take you back a little bit and say that in, when we did our coverage of Children of the Corn, we were always wondering who walk, he who walks behind the corn, which is the main antagonist, you could say, yes. of, of uh, that film. Children of the Corn. Mm-hmm. We, came to the, we came to the conclusion that Randall Flagg was he who walks behind the stalks. He who and, walks behind the rows. Yeah. And evidently, Randall Flagg's first appearance in The Stand, which is one of his, you know, basically his biggest appearance in the macroverse, aside from him being everywhere, he was first seen in the corn. Yes, and this is the first time that I think they even used Randall Flagg's name. They didn't say his name, just that they pointed to him. And what I thought was interesting as well was that she described him as a storm, which, as we saw in Children of the Corn, he, his sentient, you know, being was that of a storm. Yes, like a fiery fiery storm, too. Right. So we refer, this is where we're introduced to Randall Flagg, a main antagonist of the entire macroverse. I'm super excited to get really more into his character and what we think as we continue. But So what happens after that, Jacob? We're introduced to Nick. He wakes up in the police facility, and they find out who did it to him. And then we're taken back to good old Stu. Yeah, so I think at this point was Stu already in that center being studied. Yeah, he was in there refusing to cooperate. Yeah, which, so he, as anyone would. So it seems as though at this point in the series that the government didn't really want to let it know what their participants were participating in. And so I don't Nick even think they wanted like anyone to know about anything. Oh no, not at all. But it was <laughs> Nick Andros was not happy being there because they just wouldn't tell him what was going on. It was Stu. Sorry, Stu. My, my bad. But yeah, student wasn't happy. He was upset, threatening the nurses, the doctors, because, I mean, who wouldn't want answers? I mean, yeah, when you're locked up against your will, like, Stu was stewing up in there. He was watching everyone around him die, basically. And, I mean, I wouldn't be happy about being locked up somewhere during the end of the world. And even picked, pricked and prodded. And prodded, yeah. Experimented on, really. Mm-hmm. And then here is a, we, uh, after Stu's little breakdown, we're taken to another Randall Flagg situation where we see these two men go to rob a, a diner, was it? I believe it was a diner, yeah. Because they said gas station at first, but then they went to a diner. 
So they went there and they started shooting up the place. And one of the main villains right there looks to the sky and on the um oh it's the power pole, power pole. was Randall Flag. Why yes. did he get arrested after he murdered a few people inside that diner? But what I think is interesting is Randall Flagg's calling card, that of the crow. Yes, and that was really interesting because throughout the entirety of this series, I think it's about like every other shot you're going to see a crow somewhere. Like, and that only leads you to believe, you know, his power of uh, yes, where he's everywhere. Because Randall Flagg is very, very powerful. He's able to insert himself into the minds of the people he's trying to possess in a way. Like this trash can man, of course, who we're going to talk about in the next episode more of. Oh, yeah. And just the fact that, you know, he really doesn't have... I think that, you know, it's kind of wicked how he just stands and watches. Yeah, he he acts as though he's like some sort of passive observer when the reality is he's making all of these things happen. Like, we know that it was Randall Flagg that kind of possessed that, that Children of the Corn cult in the last episode that we talked about. Oh, yeah. And, and how he just is, you know, almost in a way his influence guides everyone. Uh, one of the things I think is that he was kind of using Mother Abigail as a way to get all of these characters together for his own gain, while at the same time it seemed like to Mother Abigail and her group that they were going to try to help and fight. Mm-hmm. So how about you tell us down what happens next after we get encountered with that diner fight? So from there on out, it's it starts to kind of turn into like a bit of a road trip movie, I guess you would say, right? Yeah, a lot of people going uh, to uh, Nebraska. All of these characters are trying to make their way around, but before that, we have was it Harold and Franny? Yes. They start to get sick. We go back to their life, and Harold, you know, dies. Very quickly, he dies of that sickness that's spreading everywhere. And Franny's pretty devastated. I think it was her dad that died, not Harold. I, 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 God. <laughs> I keep. <laughs> See, this is this is the only thing that was hard for me was just the sheer influx of characters. Oh yeah, there, there were a lot to take in. But, but basically, uh, see, Fran- Franny's dad dies. Yes, and and not not uh, Harold the nerd. You know, as horrible as it's called, that's kind of like his moniker. But yeah, Franny's dad passes away, and who's there to help her? The nerd, <laughs> good old Harold. Of course. He sees the opportunity. He's like, sweet, now there's no dad here to chase me off the porch with a shotgun in his hand. No dad, no boyfriend. What's not to love? And exactly. He's a writer. He's a writer. He's a poet. He's, oh god, he's very opportunist. <laughs> and so from there, I believe it is... Who is it that goes over to them and convinces them that they need to leave? Was it... It wasn't Nick. It was... I know it wasn't Stu either. I, I I know who you're talking about. I forget his name. It's What's not his Larry, name? right? I, I no, might no, have no. been. No, I think it was Larry. No, was it Larry or was it uh Tom? Well, anyway, it wasn't the characters Tom. are uh, the characters were convinced to head out to Nebraska as well, and so it seems like all of our people now are all headed to uh, Nebraska. Yes, because, we have because Mother Abigail's waiting, and our deaf leader is taking us there with him. Yeah. And then and next so, we come across the escape of Stu. Yes. After enough time being stuck in that laboratory, the disease breaks its way in. And, and so it he, starts infecting everyone around him, too. Everyone, like, yeah. Researching. 
Yeah, it, it gets to the point where he is the only, the sole survivor in this research laboratory. Both and as... Uh, yeah, yeah he, he really is the only survivor, which, you know, is horrifying again to see that kind of play out where we get, like, almost a recap from, of the beginning. Like, everybody's dead. Okay. Everybody is, yeah. And that's the one thing this, this film does not relent in, is giving you the scope of the chaos. There are just dead bodies drawn about everywhere. And and I think that's kind of interesting, seeing how, like, um, you know, this plague sends people, you know, into a mass hysteria. Because as we can see earlier, with when Larry calls up his girlfriend uh, in California about his record deal, um, later on, all of New York is like a war zone, an urban war zone of chaos. Absolutely. fighting, fires going on everywhere, people, you know, trying to kill each other over the smallest things. Yeah, it, it was basically just like, is that called martial law? Where it's just you take yeah, the law and they own hands. That as well, because remember the military, who was as we mentioned before, was going around and trying to you know make sure all this was very hush hush. Killed some reporters because they caught footage of what was going on. Yes. So this is just essentially just a time of chaos, you know, a time of unrest, which you know, kind of very much similar to how COVID was for a lot of us. Yeah, although I would say the chaos factor here is a little bit higher. Yeah, I would higher. say that as well. You know, nobody was crashing <laughs> through my window. No, no, it was actually a rather, rather chill end of the world scenario for us here in the real world. But yeah, I always, it was, it was, it was a lot like how they said in the beginning. This is how the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Yes. Now I really enjoyed the scenes with the. Uh, the guy, the religious person that was running around town kind of preaching the end of the world, because we see them a lot in the beginning of this, of this episode. Yes. And, and he was going around saying, gather the dead, right? Yeah, and that was a little subtle Monty Python reference, I believe. <laughs> it was, and you know, and his name, which I think was really interesting, was The Monster. The Monster, yeah. And that's... Like, Played by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, and it's... I don't... I never really figured out why they called them, um... The monster. But yeah, that is the professional basketball player that you're thinking of right now. Yes. It's and I believe he was with, uh... Bruce Lee as well. He was, uh... He trained under the tutelage of Bruce Lee. Now that, I didn't know. Yeah, a little bit of another tidbit of history for you guys. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did, um... He was, he was you know, legendary basketball player in his own right. And he did martial arts and was trained by uh, Bruce Lee. Stay tuned for the Macroverse Trivia Night. <laughs> <laughs> All these people who were just in random movies. But let's get to the character breakdown. Yes. We are the Macroverse Maniacs, diving deep now into our character analysis. Okay. So let's talk about our first character that we're really, you know, set to really to, Stu Redman. Yes. Stu Redman you know, comes from the small town, as you can see, and really gets everything just thrown upon him. And the horror that this guy must know that he is one of the only people immune while everybody else around him is dead. Yeah, and even before this realization, he's just a bit of a hothead, I would say. Oh, oh yeah, definitely not, you know, a man who's, as you could say, confident in himself and wants to do things on his way or the highway. Yes. 
But altogether, I can honestly say I think this guy is kind of more caring to those around him. A very much a leader man character. 100% the leader. Even though he's by himself most of the film. Right. But, you know, it's, it's his general personality and how his, his demeanor that we see in, in this first episode that really sets him apart from a lot of the other characters. Because we look at Larry, we look at Nick, and, you know, look at Harold, of all people. And they're really kind of pushovers in the sense that, you know, if push comes to shove, they're not one to, you know, take the mantle. No, they, they are definitely, even though they're main characters, they act more like side characters. Absolutely. And I think that once they start, once, you know, I predict that they're going to all meet up in Nebraska. And once they meet Stu, I think that he's really going to, you know, like be the glue that holds the foundation together. Yeah, just because he has that key bit of information that everyone else doesn't in regards to the whole government cover-up part. And on top of that, he's immune. He is immune. But as far as we know of, all of these other characters are also immune. Yeah, and we can say that Stu has survived kind of the most out of all of these characters because he was taken away, he was poked and prodded at, and he did escape that facility. He did, yes. And I mean, it wasn't merely luck nor coincidence that got him free of that facility. I won't be able to straightforward and say I would think it was Randall. It, it was Randall, 100%. And that's what I was trying to lead into. So thanks for killing my momentum. <laughs> well, before we get to Randall, let's talk about one of my favorite characters, good old Larry. Okay. He was Larry, a cool character. I like Larry because I think that he's one of the people who would... If, you know, granted, he's not one, you know, when push comes to sub, he might stand aside. But ultimately, I think we're going to see this guy grow and he might be able, be able to take on a, a, you know, a bit more of a leadership role in case anything happens to Stu. 100%, yeah, because he... Definitely a go-getter. I love this guy. And a nurturer, considering he did try to care for his mom as best as he could. It right, kind of shows... It kind of shows that he's caring even though he's about himself. Yes, 100%. That even though he's got this, you know, or facade that you know, you know, I'm the best there is, blah 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 blah. You know, I'm famous, I'm cool. But what really sets him apart from that is he doesn't follow that celebrity. I guess you could say a stereotype of them being only about themselves. And yeah, he's actually caring. He is caring. He's not like someone that's been completely absorbed by Hollywood. Even though his license plate will make you think otherwise. <laughs> his license plate was dope, and that <laughs> car. Yeah. Now let's get on to Nick. What's your thoughts on Nick? I honestly think that Nick might have been one of my favorite characters, mostly because of how he was towards Tom Cullen. He's Nick seems to be a pretty empathetic, caring person. And I assume that's because he's both deaf and mute. You know, I attribute, you know. I attribute Nick a lot to um, Duddits, if you've also been with the Macroverse for a long time. Um, Duddits is one of the main characters of the film um, Dreamcatcher. And we find out later on that Duddits is another alien that battles the Greys. I, I attribute him a lot to Duddits, only because, you know, he does have a disability with him, but he's got that caring soul that Duddits had. Yeah, it's almost like it gives, gives them more empathy. And so I'd like... You know, as, as someone who knows ASL and was in the deaf community, sorry for cutting off, I would say he, he does yeah. represent... He does play a really good deaf guy. He does, yeah. It's, I mean... Thankfully, I'm sure it's a little bit easier when you don't have to uh, to speak any lines. But it's very convincing and very compelling. And you can tell, like, they put research into the role of someone who's deaf and mute. 
Absolutely. So what so what are your other thoughts on Nick? Like where do you see him going later on in the series? I, I definitely see him as like one of the main three pivotal characters. I think he's up there with Stu. I also do think that when I think the big three of this of this series, I really do think Stu, Nick, and Larry. And I feel yeah. like he Nick has the potential to step up and kind of I almost expect like a sacrifice from him at some point or another. Oh, don't hurt me like that. <laughs> I like this guy. I do too, but he seems like he would like take a bullet for, for someone, you know? He's got that golden soul. He does have that golden soul. And you see that you see that a lot with how he takes care of Tom Cullen, who we haven't really been introduced to at this point in the episode we're talking about right now. It's a little bit further ahead. But Tom Cullen is also special needs and is just kind of lost in this world, but is also immune. And Nick is over there taking care of him, making sure he's okay, getting him Pepto-Bismol, stuff like that, and then kind of teaming up with him. Yeah, I kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, both are have, like, I guess you could say disability in a way, or something that sets them apart physically. Yeah. Which is kind of different than we see in most uh, Stephen King films. That's true. We usually see people that are, like, outcasted because of, like, social things rather than, like, physical disabilities. <clears throat> but, I mean, who, the character, the girl from the shop... She had no problem making fun of Tom Cullen at all. Well, yeah. And that that really bothered me, I will say. And I'm kind of intimidated for when she comes back. Yeah, let's move on to someone else who also, I think, is kind of, kind of you know, the, a hateable character. And that's Franny. Yes. Franny, you know, I look at Franny and I'm just like, ah, I can't get past that, you know, Prissy pick me girl, you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely thinks that she's the bee's knees, thinks that she's all of that, and too good for anybody. And that leads us into our other character, to Harold. Who, yes. despite Franny being this obnoxious woman, he's still there to take care of her. Or at least try to in some way. He, he tries his best to kind of force himself into that relationship with her and it's pathetic and it's sad and it hurts but it happens it's it's these two characters that really kind of kind of set forward that i guess you could say that feeling of you know unescapability of downfall of dread because it's these two clashing forces that the end of the world's here and it's just me and you left. And you're like, well, this is who I wanted to be stuck with. This is the last person I was hoping to see. I'm, I'm sure Franny was like, oh, why do you have to be immune? Of all people, the poetry man? Yeah, come on. You would think that guy would not be in good enough health to be able to survive this. Like, why is he and one it, of the chosen ones? There was only one thing that kind of creeped me out when it came to him. Was her comment of, how about you find someone your age? And I was what does that mean? Because they were a couple years apart. Yeah, yeah, I think he. Yeah, he seemed a little bit older than her, but he had a crush on her since he was nine. Yeah, that's too long for a crush. I don't know. I think when it comes to crushes, give it a year and then give up. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm curious to see where they where they go because they're both headed to Nebraska, 
and it just seems like their clashing force is going to make for something interesting, and I'm pretty sure Randall can really use that against them. Which, let's get into Randall. What's your thoughts on him? Randall is just an absolute beast. Definitely scares me a lot, because we don't really know what Randall Flagg is capable of besides release- releasing the world's worst plague upon them. It's just he knows how to get into everyone's head, He scares even the most powerful people, such as Mother Abigail. And he kind of has the ability to pull you into and fabricate the reality of what you're living. Definitely a harbinger of chaos. Randall Flagg is somebody who definitely has a lot more power than most people within the Macroverse. I think even stronger than Robert Gray from what we've seen, because they can both shapeshift. Oh, yeah. And I think what makes him a little more scary is the fact that he 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 just looks like someone you'd see every day. Oh yeah, just just a regular old guy walking down the street. But let me tell you, his style, killer. <laughs> that swag, that outfit, amazing. The way he and walks. Think... <laughs> but but I think what what he might do is I really think that he could really use Harold and Franny against each other. Yeah. And I mean, to an extent, there kind of was that that point early on in the film where um, Harold was trying to go with, I think, Larry. Or no, Franny wanted to go with Larry, but Harold was all kind of trying to step in and be like, what if he's not good for us? What if he's dangerous? But you know what else I think that, because we can see that Randall really does have an influence over people. We can see that with Children of the Corn, how he turned a whole town of children against people. But this isn't children. These are grown people. And when it comes to Harold, He's so fixated on Franny, he definitely use that against uh, everybody else. Because 100%. if you push someone past that limit, you know what 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 could the damage be? Very true. And we see that Randall. When you look at the macroverse, there always seems to be a crow around too. Always, you're. I think you're right about that. Let's look at. Uh, let's look. Let's take a step back. Look at it. There was a crow generally in most areas that Pennywise was as well. That's that's interesting because I mean I feel like in other forms of pop culture they also use the crow as some sort of a harbinger of chaos, misfortune if you would. Even just like something to look through, like a lens, like a camera almost. Like they they oversee, they look and then we all know that crows have like insane memory. A crow never forgets. They hold grudges. They stop. Well, what else I think is interesting is that they're going to Nebraska, where Randall Flagg really kind of set up his base of operations. Yeah, he's very powerful in Nebraska, as we've seen from the events of Children of the Corn. Because as we see from, you know, it and everything seems to go back to Derry, Maine, when it comes, you know, in perspective to Pennywise, when it comes to Randall, everyone's going to Nebraska. Yeah, definitely a connection there that I think I can see that maybe maybe they're in cahoots with each other. Do you think who's in cahoots? I think Randall Flagg and Pennywise might be in cahoots with each other because they seem to have a lot of the same goals of just causing as much chaos as they possibly can. Yeah, I I would say Randall Flagg might have a little bit less self-control than the Robert Gray, the Pennywise that we all know. Because Pennywise appears to feed off of the fear, while Randall Flagg seems to feed off of just straight-up murder, straight-up death. 
But I think what makes um, you know Randall a little bit more scary is the fact that he's willing to play the long game. He does play the long game for sure. He and he's willing to take the, you know the the slow route and make he, sure he gets what he wants. He knows if he waits it out, they'll all make their way over to him. But at the same time, he is also trying to get his own army on his side. And that all starts with the Trash Can Man. Yep. So why don't you tell us about the Trash Can Man a bit? So, I would, I would say Trash Can Man seems very unpredictable. He almost seems a little bit Mad Max to me. Mm-hmm. In some ways, he runs around wanting to catch things on fire. He seems like he wants to blow something up really badly. He's and really he he's very. I guess you could describe him close to like Junkrat from Overwatch. That's kind of what I was thinking, honestly. But I didn't know if I wanted to make that parallel. He kind of <laughs> does remind me of a Junkrat. He's definitely. Um, I guess you could say, wants to cause chaos just like Randall. Exactly, and I think that's what makes him one of the prime pickings for Randall Flag because, for as far as we know of. Randall Flagg keeps alive who he wants to keep alive. He chose which handful of people are going to survive this horrible plague. And he chose Trash Can Man for a reason. And I think Trash Can Man is willing to do whatever it takes to... I think he holds Randall on this pedestal. And what what better person would you want to worship you than someone who's a little touched and willing to blow things up or at least looks like it, and is willing to go to any lengths to please Master. Yeah, he's a little bit of a Smeagol, in some cases. <laughs> exactly. And I can't wait to see where you know most of this goes. Me so too. now that we've looked at a lot of the characters, let's talk about how this really affects the macroverse. And we'll get to that right when we come back. Yes. We've talked plot, we've discussed the characters, and by this point, you know how we feel about the Stephen King adaptation. Now, it's time for our favorite part of the Into the Macroverse episode, where we bring up our theories and beliefs about how everything happening within this universe is a part of something bigger. That is right, folks. It's Macroverse Theory Time. All right, we're back. We are back. And if you've been paying attention, we've been talking a lot about the uh, the stand this week, the 1994 first episode of that miniseries. And this is the one that's directed by Mick Garris, for all of you that may need to know. Mick Garris seems to like his Stephen King just a little bit. He made his own version of it, of The Shining in 1997, which I just found out during that break. Did you know that? I didn't. It's not the Jack Nicholson one. It's its own version. It's a three-episode horror television miniseries based on the Shining Stephen King novel. Yeah. And it's his own iteration. Yeah, and I've never heard of it, and it looks it looks a little bit creepy, a little bit weird. But again, I, I didn't know it existed until about two minutes ago. <laughs> we'll definitely have to compare those two when we see them. We're going to have to go to it. I know that it was produced by Stephen King. I don't think it was written by Stephen King. But the costume but, design 
is interesting. But we're back to the stand. And we're we going to talk this time about how the events of here really shake up everything in the macroverse as a whole. Yeah, so... so you go so ahead, how sorry. You go first? Okay, I'll go first. I'm going to say, first off, right off the bat, this is an insane addition to the macroverse because of the scope of how much damage is done. Exactly. On the chaos scale, this tips it completely. We've seen, we've seen, you know, small town things, a lot of people getting killed every now and then. We took Christine, we've already looked at, you know, and the chaos that caused Carrie killing a whole, her whole class. We see Pennywise yeah. destroying people, uh, you know, in a set period. But this is, affects the world. Yeah, this is, this is the only Stephen King adaptation where what's happening is known to everyone. Everyone's the living only, through it. Yeah, the only thing that I can imagine that might be up to scale in terms of how much this could affect would have been the Dark Tower. Yes, which we do need to get to very soon. Which we will. And we'll we definitely will. compare how that, how that looks to the stand. And when looking at this in the scope of the macroverse, we're introduced to one of the most powerful characters, Randall Flagg. Yes, this is his true form, the true... The only case, really, where you can truly see how powerful these beings are. And they're not quite as shrouded in mystery as some of the other films. A little bit less vague, a lot more direct. Oh, definitely, because we got a glimpse of him earlier in Children of the Corn. We did, but it was just a glimpse. And just from that glimpse, we I mean you already decided that this whoever this is is horrifying. Because oh, he, oh god, yeah. He turned this whole town and turned it upside down and murdered them every adult murdered by children. Children. And all in a matter of like a couple of nights, uh, even of uh, one day, even like it, it seemed like it happened overnight, practically. Basically, because basically the entire town of adults was murdered in the scope of a few hours. There was never any police called. No one ever started to like lock their doors and try to hide. People were just killed, completely blindsided to what was happening. That and the fact that he was just so prominent. And so powerful that he was able to make his own religion based off him. Almost. I know, for real. It's like they were literally bowing down to the man. And here in the stand, we see that in the end times, it's almost as if he's trying to come in as a savior. Or at least yeah. portray himself in a way. Make himself come off as one, even though he is just an element of chaos and destruction. Absolutely. And... I think that's really important to the Macroverse because unlike any other villain, we see that Randall Flagg really wants to be seen as someone to look up to. Whereas we look at Pennywise before and he wants to be feared. Christine wants to be loved by only one person and will take out everybody else. Carrie, you know, she just wanted care from other people. But Randall, he wants to be seen as a good guy. He tries to take the sides with the people. Who was the character that was in the prison? What was their name? Uh, what's that? Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Was it, uh, it wasn't Trash Can Man. It was not. But, no, but no, he was also there trying to just convince him. Yeah. Trying to show him, you know, hey, I'm here for you. It's okay. And, and even though those characters were, like, obviously kind of scared and intimidated by him, they still had that kind of sense of weird trust towards him. A sense of almost wanting if that makes yes. sense like he has that he has this passion to be wants you know you want to follow him you want to be around him you want to know him 
Yes. Which to me, in the scope of the Macroverse, is horrifying. It is terrifying, because every other being we've seen throughout these films is trying to stay under the radar as, ba- as best as they can. They're trying to stay under the radar and not be detected. Here, it flipped on his head. It's like the, he's Randall Flagg is trying to make himself known. And what also interests me is the point we made earlier that in a lot of Stephen King films that we've already seen, there is a crow, which seems to be his calling card. You're right. It is his calling card, I would say. But again, a flock of crows is called a murder. So maybe that's part of it. <laughs> well, he is murdering the whole world, as we can see. Oh, yeah. With basically like a snap of his fingers. Like This might as well be the pre-Thanos. And, and what I also find interesting is that he's able to play off people's emotions much like Robert Gray was. Yes. He um, almost kind of induces cabin fever, I would say, in Stu. When he's inside of that, inside of that uh, research facility, he starts to kind of go a little bit insane for a little bit there. A little stir-crazy. Yeah, like he definitely gets pulled off his reins a little bit towards the end when he's getting close to almost killing the laboratory assistants. Oh, definitely. I mean, but then again, he was locked up for we don't know how long. Yeah, we won't ever get the scope, but I'm assuming it's a, at least a week. Maybe two. Yeah, one or two weeks at least. And, you know, with all of us who went through COVID, we can imagine, you know, we were at least in the comfort of our own homes. This guy was taken out. Yeah, I had Wi-Fi at least. (laughs) This guy was stuck watching whatever they had in that big box TV. They had the news. Oh, yeah, and you think you want to watch that during a time of mass chaos? Might as be scrolling through the trending Twitter pages. But in the grand scheme of it, I think this is really essential to a lot of the Macroverse because it explains that Randall Flagg, it seems, is almost everywhere. Yes, 100%. And that he almost influences a lot of the characters or villains within. Yeah, I think he has the power to kind of insert his own will upon other people and make them think it's their own will. Like, those dream sequences, as powerful as we may think Mother Abigail could be, I want to say Randall Flagg was partially involved in that. Oh, yeah. Like, maybe he allowed them to see that. What, what, if, what if Mother Abigail isn't even a thing? What if that's all Flagg? It could be. And definitely, hopefully, we will find out. Although, I do have a lot of trust and faith in Mother Abigail, because she just seems too pure for this world. She just yeah. wants to sit down on her porch and play her banjo. <laughs> It was a banjo, I was, right? I think it was, or like some little guitar. Something like that. Not a ukulele. No, definitely not. But I just think that maybe she might be, you know, part of Flag's control because her house is surrounded by a cornfield. Yes. And that's very central because from as far as we know of, Randall Flag gets some of his power from the cornfields. <laughs> that's at least what I think. And we don't even know the true scope of how much he can do. We don't, know. We've only seen very little of his real abilities. But we he's will rather... definitely see more. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. But right now, he's rather tacit. He's uh, kind of trying to just... He tries to see like he's not crazy. He's trying to get people on his side. And he's trying to kind of build up an army so slowly. Because he knows he has time. Oh, yeah. He knows that if he play, waits it out, he's going to get what he wants, which I think is also scary in terms of the macroverse, because in the macroverse, we see things go, you know, instant. Yes. Everything kind of all happens at once 
but in the, the scope of the stand, things happen a lot slower. There's a lot more time for these characters to kind of to grow and kind of understand each other, which I think is more what Randall Flagg wants because he wants to tear them down. Oh yeah, he just wants to you know build you up to break you down, as you would say. Yes, and once you're at that bottom floor, you know, completely shattered, who do you go to? Mr. Flag. Exactly. And I think this is a good place to end it right here as we look at how much this is going to go into the macroverse because we haven't seen the full scope of, you know, the story yet and we're only episode one. Yes, and there will be four episodes of this before we start to visit into the nine-episode miniseries of 2020, which we also hope will give us some more knowledge of who Randall Flagg is and what he's trying to do. Exactly. So... For us here at the Macroverse, we say stay curious, keep the lights on, and always keep questioning. Keep looking over your shoulder, too. And we'll see you next time. On into the Macroverse. You've been listening to Levi Hill and Jacob Willett. And this has been a speculative dive into yet another one of Stephen King's twisted tales. So don't trust that sound you hear. Always keep a watchful eye, and don't look under the bed, because you never know what you may stumble upon when you wander your way into the macroverse.